You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Shareability, a social content company that makes videos people actually want to watch. They work with brands and influencers to create content that explodes across the web through social sharing and organic discovery. For years, Shareability has been topping the charts with crowd-captivating videos for brands like Pepsi, Pizza Hut, Sony Entertainment, and Cristiano Ronaldo's Rock, delivering over a billion views, 5 million shares, and 50,000 press mentions. Check out some examples of their work on shareability.com. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Dr. Jessica Taylor Petrowski, Associate Professor in the Amsterdam School of Communication Research and the Director of the Center for Research on Children, Adolescents, and the Media. Jess, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are here on location at VidCon, your yes. first VidCon US. My first I'm, VidCon, yes. How's it been? What do you think? It's wild here. So I did the VidCon Europe, which I thought was a great experience, and I came here, and this is nothing like VidCon Europe. Right. So How much larger. Differ? Space is larger. The people, the presence, everything is just sort of on a higher level. It's kind of great energy here. That's awesome. Jess and I did a session yesterday about psychology of digital media and adolescence. Yeah talking about your research into how kids consume media and what it's like growing up in an era of smartphones and social media platforms. So tell us some of the key themes of your research. I run a center where we're really trying to understand the role of media in the lives of young kids today. So we're working with very young kids through teenagers and beyond, and we're really trying to understand what we call both the sunny and dark sides of media. So when does it augment and support their lives? Educational effects, pro-social effects, social-emotional skills, but also what are their concerns, whether it's aggression or depression or the concerns of something like multitasking. So we're really trying to cover the gamut and really understand what that relationship looks like. In the session yesterday, we covered a lot of those themes. But one of the things that we didn't get to is what is the sweet spot for creating successful media content? And if so, how do we find it? I think that's a great question, and I'm not sure there's necessarily an easy answer, but one of the things I find most important is knowing your audience really well, and that means knowing their development. And one of the things I think that can be challenging as a media creator, you want to sort of get the largest audience possible. But what we also know is that development, so really age in some ways, is a huge indicator of media preference. A more narrow audience means you're going to really hit their developmental needs much more, and you're actually more likely to hit success. One big thing is thinking about development. The other thing is thinking about the context in which the child's growing up and who is your target audience? What is your typical teenager like? And thinking about how that media space is going to be used. In doing those things, you really need to consider what's going to be entertaining for them. And if you're creating educational content, how do you take that educational content and successfully embed it in the entertainment? And if you're really creating entertainment content, you need to recognize Even if you say I'm targeting 13 to 15-year-olds, what is entertaining for one child will be different for another, and you need to start thinking about their needs. So in some ways, that sweet spot involves talking to young people. And the number of times I work with developers who've actually never actually talked with their target audience is quite surprising. And so that first step of getting ideas out there, talking to your audience, thinking about who they are, pitching these ideas, storyboarding them, very simple, you'll find really quickly what they like, what they understand, the vocabulary they use, and that's all going to resonate much more with them. 
And that's one of the amazing things about social media platforms like YouTube, like Instagram, is that they are two-way. They create that dialogue between fans and content creators. Absolutely. And I think that user-generated content, this idea that we talk about, this holy grail of media space, this is actually something that media developers can capitalize on. On the one hand, young people enjoy creating content, and it's an incredible skill that they're developing. I mean, sit with a seven-year-old and watch what they can do. It's so much more impressive than what I could do when I was seven. But you also get a sense then of what they're enjoying, of what they like. Yesterday after our presentation, we had that long line of people that wanted to talk with me. And it was great because I was talking with one producer and he said, I'm thinking about doing more user-generated content, but how would it help me? And we started brainstorming really quickly how if you get a sense of what young people are doing and creating, you can then really build off of that alter and edit your content accordingly and almost create a very interesting spiral whereby you're actually reflecting on their needs. And speaking of needs, not just for the audience, but also for the creators, right? A lot of these influencers grow up on these platforms, right? They start in childhood and mature, and we can see that full coming-of-age story played out through digital media. What are the challenges that someone would face if they're living their whole life in front of a camera? I think you can imagine how many challenges there are. I was actually looking at the VidCon program, and I thought it was interesting that one of the topics was about work-life balance as an influencer, And I thought to myself, I've never considered that before, but when are you off? When are you on? How do you separate those roles? Can you? I think you also have the challenge of authenticity. As an influencer, you are most powerful when you are authentic. But at some point, you also have to identify how authentic are you going to be? What level of privacy do you want to have? Or are you not going to have privacy? And I think that's a real challenge. And yesterday, actually, in our event, I thought it was really interesting because someone said, I remember when... There was a time where you created content and the users did not expect a response from you. And now as an influencer, I feel as though when I create content, I put it out there and young people pose questions back. I need to respond to them. This parasocial relationship is becoming so intense that I need to consistently respond. And what is my responsibility in that? I think that's a really important question. And I don't know what the answer is yet, but there certainly is an interesting opportunity and power in being an influencer and how you might be impacting young people's lives. But that also means, what are you going to do? Are you going to respond to your fans? How often? And do you recognize how powerful your message is to them? You're right. The job isn't done when the content is created and pushed out there. It's an ongoing demand on their time from the fans. And how do you respond to the tone that you strike? Because the fans see this not as just a piece of content that they're leaning back and experiencing, but that they're part of the conversation. It's absolutely. It's now lean forward media. We actually have a lot of scholarship that's talked about the days of lean back media versus lean forward media, and they are leaning into it and they want to be part of it. Even when they don't produce it themselves, they want to be part of that experience in a very different way. And I don't think we're going to go backwards on this. I think this is where we are with young people today. I think this is what our new media space looks like. But we have some growing pains in figuring out how to do that in a way that's safe for young people, how to do it in a way that actually protects our influencers too. This is their lives and their health and well-being as well. And how do we do it in a way that really is entertaining and enjoyable? I think a lot of people are figuring that out. And places like VidCon actually allow conversations about that. That's right. It's truly the offline experience, bringing everyone together in a live event to uh, meet your fans, connect with brands that might be sponsors, you know, yeah. see what the rest of the ecosystem looks like. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the offline idea. Yesterday at the end of the event, someone said to me, one of my concerns is that young people are spending so much time online that they don't know how to communicate offline anymore. They don't know how to make eye contact. They don't know how to have conversations without having a smartphone in front of them. They don't know how to do something without texting. And they said, what do we do about that? 
And on the one hand, actually, what we know is that there's a lot of research that social media space, communicating in social media, can help those introspective kids practice their communication skills. In my lab, we released a paper called Practice Makes Perfect, where we actually showed that time spent online actually allowed kids to feel more confident and create really more socially successful interactions and actually form more friendships. So we know in one way that this practice can really be helpful for certain kids. But more generally, we also talked about, you know, what does it mean if we're on on these digital spaces all the time? And I said, well, one of the things you see is that influencers will often say, you know, look, we're going to have a random meetup today at so-and-so park, free giveaway, hang out. That's actually bringing the online space offline. And I think we can do that as well. And that's going to be something that we might take more seriously in the future, what our social responsibility is. Sometimes I worry more about the parents than the kids. Parents, you go to an event and they're the ones looking down at their phone in a solo concentration just on what's on the screen, similar to how we're used to watching television. Whereas when you're with youth, they're looking at the phone, but passing it around, watching videos together. It's more collaborative. It's really more social, even with the device. It's absolutely true. Young people have actually figured out, they use this really as a tool. Their digital media space is much more a social tool. It's a social lubricant that they use much more accessibly. And they don't see these boundaries that we often see because we remember a time where we didn't have this technology. They do not. It's important that parents recognize that even though, especially during the teen years, they might be perhaps less popular amongst their teens. We know that there's resistance to parents and things like that, but they are still models for their kids' behavior. Kids really do learn and look up from their parents. And when parents are consistently on their devices, that's a message that they're implicitly sending to the young people in their lives. And so when parents talk to me about concerns of media addiction or media overuse or multitasking, I'll actually ask them, well, what's your own media habits look yeah, like? Yeah, what's the behavior that you model for Exactly. Thing? And do you think there is such a thing as too much screen time? Or are we seeing examples of media addiction that we should be worried about? Recently, there's been a push now. You'll see that media addiction has now been listed as a potential addiction that is now being categorized. I have some issues with it still myself. I think we really don't know how to diagnose it quite well yet. There are some ideas on how to do it. I absolutely believe that we probably have a very small percentage of people who suffer with media addiction. But I think more generally, we have a range of media use options. And there are certainly kids, actually adults too, who are using technology heavier than others. My concerns are less there right now. I do think we should be aware of it, but I also think we're in this growing pains moment. With every new technology, you see sort of a heightened increase, and then it sort of balances out. I think maybe we're trying to find our balance right now. This is something I write about in the book that we talked about yesterday. Patty and I, we really, we talk about this idea of the smartphone generation and how right now we're in a space where we are consistently connected. We're always connected to our devices and to each other. And there's a lot of affordances and there's a lot of benefits of that. But there also may be arguments for taking a break sometimes. And I'm a media proponent, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't chill out, take a break, remember a time when you went on holiday and maybe weren't connected to everyone and did it, you know, totally unplugged just for a little bit. I think we're going to be working that out. I think it's very telling when you look at some of the fastest apps that are going in the app market right now, that they're apps designed to turn your phone off. There's something about that. We're all seeking that out. And it's not young people specific, but it really is all of us. Let's talk about some of those new technologies that are changing the way we experience media. Obviously, the thing that comes to mind is virtual reality, augmented reality, other immersive experiences like 360. So studies have indicated that very young children who are using new technology like VR, AR, have difficulty distinguishing between what's real and what's the manufactured experience and their brains can get imprinted with the memory of that virtual experience. What does the research tell us? And then that's exactly, you're absolutely right. This is the case. Some of the early scholarship shows that for young children, in general, regardless of the space they're in, they struggle separating reality from fantasy. 
This is why when a child says there's a monster under my bed, they truly believe that monster is under their bed or in their closet. When they're talking about Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, that is a real entity at that moment. The boundary between reality and fantasy is quite fuzzy. It's also a lovely time in kids' lives. There's something very enjoyable about that space. But when you put children in something like a VR space or particularly a VR space where we've seen this happen, the experience they have, they go on to consistently believe was an authentic experience. Now, is this good or bad? Well, it depends on the experience, right? What's worrying me about VR, AR, 360 experiences is that we don't yet have a set of guidelines or ethical policies on what we're going to do or not do. I think about some of the opportunities you can have in the classroom with something like virtual reality. We know, for example, that visual experiences can be so much more powerful for certain learners than textual experiences. If I tell you to read about Rome versus I take you to Rome, think about the differences that you can have and the way you can encode that information, or specifically that visual verbal redundancy where you read a text and then get to go experience that space. That's very powerful. But that's an experience that maybe we want our young people to have. You could think of others, however, that may be far more controversial and things that we might think we don't want them to be in that space, and we could certainly do. Think about some of the most concerning historical times we've had and saying we can put kids right there. That worries me. And we don't yet have a lot of guidelines about the rules we're going to face. We hear some guidelines about 13 or older for virtual reality. And when I talk to people who are in the VR space, there's not really a strong argumentation for that number. And I think we need research to help us understand what the boundary conditions, what the ethical guidelines will be. But we also need the people who are really jumping in this space right now to help us brainstorm this, the stakeholders in this space to say, these are sort of going to be the practices that we encourage. These are going to be the ones we discourage. And I think if we can find that, the opportunities are incredible. But without it, the opportunities could be concerning. And is that the role of government to get involved in regulation? Is it uh, industry needs to self-police? Do parents need to take an active stance on I mean, I, their children? It's a good question. I'm generally in favor. I find industry self-regulation can be very powerful, and that's a personal belief, not a research-based belief. Because when industry members come together, that often means they'll be more flexible in thinking through ideas. And I find that usually most of the people I work in industry are very passionate about protecting young kids. I don't find people saying, oh, I want to just make the buck. I really do care. I think if we can get some people at the table and talking about that and together come up with policies, that'll be helpful. But I also think we need some science to back this up, to help guide stakeholders. And so really some research that says, this is the lines we shouldn't cross. We've been doing some work in my center right now, some of the colleagues that I work with, with older people. So we're right now working with young adults to understand their experience in a VR space. And we, for example, have taken the same video game and we have the game that you would traditionally play versus the game in a VR space. And we're doing things like tracking their heart rate and we're tracking the amount of sweat on their palms, right? The skin conductance and trying to see what's happening. And in a very short period of time, the difference in heart rate between a traditional platform and the VR platform, it's the exact same content, is so significant that we have people dropping out and saying they won't continue playing it because it's a scary game or we see their heart rate dramatically escalated. This is a different experience. And it's so interesting because for so long we've had the idea of it's not the medium that matters, it's the message. But now we're seeing the message can be the same and the medium can be that powerful. So I think we need scientists, researchers such as myself saying, this is what we're seeing in our lab spaces and these are our recommendations. And we need those people at the same table as stakeholders and saying, you guys are creating this. This is what we're seeing. What together might be the policies we come up with? 
what is the role of the platforms that distribute this content? We've seen concerns about brand safety issues on YouTube and body image issues for young teens and tweens on platforms like Instagram yeah. and Musical.ly. How do we combat some of those issues? Part of it for me is actually... I find it encouraging when someone who's creator, who is the industry, saying we are concerned about this too. That's, I think, the first thing for them to also recognize the issue. For example, I have very real concerns about body image issues on Instagram as well. And there's a lot of data to show that, particularly for young girls, but not exclusively, when they begin to compare themselves to these edited images in a space like Instagram, how they feel about themselves. And when you think about a young girl suffering with body dissatisfaction and how that can lead to things like eating disorders, that's a real effect. That's a real concern. And what I want to know is how do we offset that while still maintaining the beauty that is Instagram and the joy that is Instagram? And so when a company says, we want to answer these questions and we want to work with researchers to understand that, that I think is really powerful. So it may be something as simple as labeling the image as edited. Something that just triggers just for a second, this has a filter, this has been edited. We know this works in advertising. We know, for example, when an image says this is an ad, it sort of raises your awareness like, oh, wait, they're trying to do something. And it may be something that simple, and there may be other ideas. But what I hope and what I see more often happening is companies saying, we see these concerns, and we want to help fund some initiatives and work with researchers and try to understand what we can do to be a responsible platform. And it also, there's also something on us as a society, right? It involves us educating our young people. It involves us educating parents who maybe are not aware of what this looks like. Many parents would say they don't even know what Musical.ly is, let alone what some of the concerns might be. So that also involves getting that message out there. Your research in the book, Plugged In, seems to indicate that our children are actually growing up faster than they ever have. Mm. And often that's due to the media consumption and as a result of these new technology and platforms. What do you say to parents that are concerned about how quickly their children are maturing? I think that what we see is a couple things. We see that kids are smarter than former generations. They're particularly more flexible thinkers, which is actually encouraging in many ways. And we see some links to digital media space for that when you think about the ability to problem solve and think differently and flexibly in a digital media space. We also see that they might be a little bit more narcissistic than previous generations. But that also might be that that's a little bit more socially acceptable to say now. The selfie is the exemplar of narcissism in some ways and to some extent. And we also see that kids are more likely to be diagnosed with certain neuroatypical developmental disorders and things of that sort right now. But that also may be that we've done a better job at diagnosing them. So we see changes across generations, but they're not that robust. But we do see them. But we also see that kids are embracing technology at earlier and earlier ages. We're finding data that children as young as two to four months have used an iPad. And of course, use is, is a dramatic term when you're four months old, but they've experienced some media in their space at such a young age. And I think one of the biggest things is just to be aware of what that is. Parents will often ask me, what is this that they're using? And I'll say, well, have you tried it? Have you sat down and watched an episode? Have you watched that game that they've played? Have you asked them why they like Minecraft? And even if you as a parent can understand this, you're doing so much more already. It's a tool. And for young kids, it's often a version of a toy. It's a new space, a new place that they're experiencing things, but you can still be aware of it and you can still understand why they like it and have conversations about it. And I think that goes a lot way. If you're aware, I think you're already ahead of the game. One of the things I love most about you is that you're not afraid to speak your mind. So <laughs> one of the things I want to ask you about, given I know you hold some of these strong opinions, what is something you think that others in your field would just think is totally crazy? Good question. I think most people would agree with me when I say I believe that media effects are nuanced, but I'm probably a much stronger proponent of nuanced effects than some. 
I really fight back pretty heavily when journalists interview me and ask me for a good soundbite and a good headline. I really push back on that because I don't believe we can do that. No matter how many times I've seen scholars ultimately coming out and saying, well, given X, Y, and Z, holding all of these constant, this is their relationship, I'm unlikely to say that. I'm unlikely to give you the short soundbite. And that frustrates journalists. But I also think it's a more authentic representation of the media space. I tend to, what you'll see a lot in scholarship is in the world of statistics, they'll sort of hold everything constant and saying, if everything is the same, this is the relationship. I don't do that. I let everything be messy and try to see what's going on. We got some questions about that in our VidCon session yesterday, yeah. right? Especially parental concerns around violent video game titles, right? Yeah. Fortnite, which of course is huge right, right now. now. But your studies and the other research that you've looked at indicates that, yes, children with violent tendencies or in violent situations, violent homes, there's yeah. conflict between parents, they might have a greater proclivity to choose a violent media selection or those violent media selections will give them, you use the word a double dose, right? Yeah. which is reinforcing the impact of the violence in the game as a result of their situation. That's exactly right. You'll see there's often a very contentious debate about whether or not media violence leads to aggression. If you do any Google search right now and type in media violence and aggression, the news headlines are completely mixed. There's a group that says absolutely not, and there's a group that's convinced they're there. In my center, I would say we take a much more nuanced perspective to this, and we found that in certain cases— for certain kids with certain content in certain situations, this is true, and in the others, it's not. That does not lend itself well to a headline. Sometimes is not a good headline, but that's actually the truth. And you're absolutely right. It's based on individual differences in young people. It's based on the type of media they're playing. It's based on how that aggression is portrayed. Is it rewarded? Is it justified? Is it combined with humor? It's also based on what are they growing up in? What messages are they getting at home? And also what messages are they getting from their peer environment? If their peers, for example, are against aggression, what my PhD student found actually was that they're less likely to actually embrace the messages they see in the media space because it's sort of counter to their norms. But if their peer environment is particularly supporting of this, they're more likely to do so because it sort of fits the norms. It's, it's what's cool. It's reinforced. It's reinforced. But that's not simple answers. But I think that's actually more how it works. I stand true to that even when it doesn't make everyone happy. What's coming next? If you had to make three to five predictions about yeah. the online video space, what do you see? I think in general in the media space, I think you're going to see much more about VR, AR, 360 experiences. Lots of questions about that. What should we be doing? How do we do it? How do we do it well? I think you're going to see lots of questions about multitasking and what that means when you're doing what that looks like. What is a kid's surrounding experience? And I think you're going to see, along with that, the power of the disconnect, whether we should be always connected or not. And in all of these things, the term that I hear most often, particularly in the online video space, is digital literacy. What does that mean when they're in this space and they're creating and they're learning and they're exposing themselves to different messages and different people around the world? Do they understand what this means? How do you become a smart, healthy media producer and consumer? And that question, I think you're going to see more and more coming up in the coming years as we try to think about this new generation that we're raising. A lot of listeners on the podcast are folks from the industry side. They're entrepreneurs. They are business leaders that are thinking about this space and the impacts on adolescents, especially with influencers. So a question I like to ask is, if you were starting a business, putting on mm. an industry hat now, in the online video space, what would you do? Good question. When you think about what young kids are really trying to do right now, they're consistently, our younger kids, our, let's say, 7 to 12, 7 to 13-year-olds, they are so excited about social media. They want a space for them so badly. Peers become really important around these ages. But right now, our policies are 13 and older. 
And so they do a couple things. One, they lie about their age. We know that's to be the case. Two, they try to use other technologies to allow them to communicate. Look at how often they use the chat functions in something like Minecraft to allow that space. Or some of our virtual communities, they try to find a way to connect. We've seen a couple places trying to launch a social media space for younger kids. But what happens is it's so difficult because there's so many safety concerns that are raised that by the time they get anywhere, it's almost like chocolate-covered broccoli. It's no longer interesting. So if we can find someone to do that right, if we can find someone that keeps it, that gives them the thrill and enjoyment that our social media spaces have while having the ethical protections for them, which are, of course, critical, there's a lot of money to be made. And Jess, where can people find out more about you and more about your research? So you can look me up on our website. So the CAM Center has a full website, and you can check us out there. And then my own website, jessicatellerpetrowski.com, has everything you need to know. Fantastic. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you for taking some time out of the crazy VidCon schedule to sit down and chat. And excited for more people to be aware of the important work that you and your fellow researchers in the center and all over the world are doing, because this is something that's changing fundamentally right before our eyes. And I think it's incredible to raise awareness about it. I really appreciate you having me today. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.